All right. Welcome to the Scott Rich Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Pendleton, and I am here with Spencer with Gentry Lock, and he is going to do this, do us the service to give us a little education around uh, what's called pay if paid clauses in construction contracts. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, this is a big issue that affects all of our construction clients, and so I'm hoping that you can give us not only some history here, but Spencer has a unique uh, position on this. He's a little bit of an insider. He was part of the lobbying effort involved with the AGC of Virginia. And so he's able to give us not only some background on what these clauses mean, what the new legislation means, um, but also give us a little bit of a play-by-play of the parties involved. Um, So I appreciate you doing this. Um, there's a big legislative change around pay of paid clauses in the last couple of years. But before we start talking about that, can you give us some history and background? Let's pretend that, you know, let's say I'm a new construction supervisor. I'm getting involved in negotiating contracts between, you know, general contractors and we have, um, you know, subs and just give us a sense of what these are and some of the history about what the issues were before the legislative change. Sure. So I think it's helpful to start by talking about the difference between you hear about pay if paid clauses and you hear about pay when paid clauses. And there's a difference. Um, and Virginia law would recognize primarily the difference hinges upon whether or not there is a condition precedent language in the contract clause. So payment from the upstream party, whether that's the owners of the GC the GC to a subcontractor is a condition precedent to the obligation for the party to then pay somebody downstream. Okay. okay. Um, if the clause had that condition precedent language prior to this recent statutory change, it was a pay if paid clause. And in Virginia, under Virginia case law, it would be enforceable. So it would, the obligation for a GC to pay their sub could be expressly conditioned upon the receipt of money, a corresponding payment from the upstream party being the owner. Okay. Pay when paid clauses do not have that condition present. And the way Virginia courts interpreted them was you have a time period in which you say you're going to pay your subcontractor, the low, low, lower downstream party, lower tier party. Um, but if for any reason payment is delayed, at a certain point, that delay becomes unreasonable. So you have a reasonable period of time to pay them beyond, you know, if you were to say, I'll pay within seven days of the date that I get paid from the owner. Yeah. I'm a GC. The court would say, well, without the condition of president language, I hear you, but after a certain period of time, you still got to pay because it's been too long. Yeah. It's unreasonable. It's not fair. Yeah. The payment is unreasonable. So that's the difference between the clauses. Um, historically, pay if paid clauses have been enforced, pay when paid clauses, if it didn't have that special language, would have been enforced as well. And um, a few years ago, a group of trade contractors, subcontractors got together and they get it. all had a one or more negative experiences where a pay if paid clause was used by a general contractor, a construction manager. Um, someone upstream to avoid the obligation to pay them 
a certain amount on a project. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, the, the background that that's prior to this whole effort to, to pass the legislation that recently passed. Um, and I could talk a little bit about how, how that discussion started and my role in that discussion. Um, and then yeah, feel free to stop me. Yeah, that'd be great. And maybe just even back up a little bit more. And, and so your background, you know, in the construction space, and then we can kind of maybe then back into how you even got pulled into the middle of this, just based on that background. Wow. So I, um, I've been practicing in Gentry Lock for 19 years. Um, I've been a part of the construction team since around 2005. So I did a little bit of insurance defense work before I joined that team. And we've grown that team dramatically since I started. It was just three people. Yeah. And now we've got people in, in each of our offices with the exception of our Norfolk office. But although we're working really hard to get somebody in there full time. Um, and I, almost as soon as I started working with our construction team under my mentor, Brent Marsick, now a magic partner, I started working with the Associate General Contractors of Virginia. Um, he told me on like a Wednesday afternoon that there was a meeting of the local district executive committee and he couldn't go and suggested that I go and, <laughs> and, uh, see what it's all about. So I thought, was that a suggestion or a voluntold situation? It, it, I was a young associate at the time, so I was certainly <laughs> being voluntold to go there. Gotcha. Yeah. I rolled over to the, to the, the meeting. I didn't know anybody and pretty quickly I made friends and started learning more and more about what the association did, about the industry as a whole, and about the members who were at the table at the time. And uh, the next step was to go and start doing stuff at the state level and in other districts. And so I quickly got approval to go to the the annual meeting uh, at the homestead that they have every January. Yeah. yeah. And went there and met even more people and asked how I could get involved at the state level. And one of the things that I had a passion for, and definitely being a construction lawyer, it, it lends itself to working on legislative and regulatory issues. And so I volunteered to be on the legislative committee. And at the time, Herschel Keller, who's now our partner, he was at a different firm at the time, um, was also on the legislative committee. So Herschel and I ended up being the two lawyers and working together on that committee as we tried to wade through fighting legislation back then. Really, it was just a list of here are the bills we delight, here are the bills we don't like, how do we provide commentary, and then they go fight. Um, now, it's a much more involved process. We've got AUC has, has uh, lobbyists, outside lobbyists. The CEO is himself a registered lobbyist. I am not registered for them, although I do lobby for other clients. Um, but uh, we, we are very involved in the process of analyzing legislation, legislative initiatives and bills that actually come uh, before the General Assembly and helping to advocate for the industry as a whole. Um, so yes, I've been on the Legislative Committee for the AGC of Virginia for at least 15 years. I can't remember why exactly I started. And I've been a member of the AGC's Roanoke District Executive Committee since around that time. Um, I am a past president of the Roanoke District for the AGC, and I'm currently a member of the Board of Directors representing the Roanoke District, although my term, then my second term, I'm I got about a year left. So the state board of directors, the state yeah. level right. for the AUC. Okay. Yeah. So then we'll, we'll fast forward again and, and kind of zoom back to maybe a year or two ago. Yeah. So, you know, these clauses 
to your point, a lot of contractors had a, a less than favorable experience with that. And so it sounds like a, a, you know, an effort began to develop around, let's see what changes we could make to ease the pain here. So this group of trade contractors, some of those members of that group were also members of the AUC of Virginia. The AUC has the members who are folks like me who provide services to the industry. There are folks, you know, in the insurance space and folks in the uh, accounting space. And there are other people who, who are purely suppliers of material and products. Also some trade contractor members and also a lot of general contractors as, as the name would suggest. So a group of, of the proponents of this push to to prohibit pay paid clauses were actually AGC members. So they approached the AGC leadership and said, we would like to sit down and talk about this issue because we are trying to put together a bill for consideration in the General Assembly session that was coming up. So this was late 21, and we, uh, I volunteered to be the moderator of a discussion between members of the AGC who were CMs and, and general contractors and some of the proponents of this potential legislation. And the goal was just to talk it through, talk through their experiences, talk through issues, brainstorm legislative solutions that the industry as a whole should be willing to get behind. So we had um, a meeting in person and a few meetings virtually to talk through those options. We explored some changes to the mechanics lien statute. We explored some other uh, potential statutory language requiring upstream contractors to disclose the financial health that of the owner or developer of a project and it would have mandated that the owner or developer disclose that information as well. All of those alternatives didn't really get any traction across the group as a whole. There was a lot of options discussed, but we, we couldn't come to a compromise during that process prior to the session start. So uh, a bill or bills were put forward at the start of the session. And the first version of the bill that was put forward looks nothing like the law that ultimately came into effect. Um, I will say I recently had the opportunity to, to spend some quality time at a seminar with several members of the, the General Assembly's Legislative Services Division, lawyers who helped draft these, these bills. And they work very hard and they're very smart and very good at what they do. They were given a pretty difficult task in this instance. So when I criticize the bill and the bill through the drafting process, in no way do I mean to criticize those those fine people um, with the legislative services that sure they do a heck of a good job. But they're not construction attorneys. They do what they can with what they're given. Yeah. And what they were given was not a whole lot of information. So the ABC's legislative committee in you know, my little subgroup that had been talking with the proponents of the bill continued to work with them and our lobbyists and uh, the council to the, the uh, to AGC's board to try and work through some re some revisions and some some alternative concepts that would have addressed the the pay paid clause issue um, in a way that could be acceptable to anybody at any any tier at any level within the industry. Uh, so the general assembly session is fast, right? I mean things change by the hour at times and you're constantly going through committee votes and you got to get to crossover and if you survive crossover then you got to fight like heck in in the other house of the general assembly so this was no different in 2021 where we had uh, or sorry 2022 
when the bill, I would say it didn't skate through, but it kind of plotted through the committee process in the Senate while discussions were ongoing between the proponents and the AEC and other, it wasn't just AEC, it was other, other trade groups and industry groups as well to try and come up with some compromises and changes that might've worked yeah, uh, for everybody. And so what happened was it got passed by the Senate uh, in a form that was not exactly what the original bill looked like, but a slightly updated version still with a lot of holes and problems and issues and question marks, uh, placeholder language that we need to fix. The understanding, even with the, the proponents and um, the patron of the bill, uh, Senator Bell, was that we need to fix this. It's not ready, but we're still working on the document through. So ultimately, the, the version that passed the Senate ends up in House Committee. And uh, the House Committee members, several of whom are lawyers and or affiliated with contractor entities, a couple of whom are actually affiliated with AGC members, realized that the bill that they got from the Senate was in need of some dramatic revision and changes. At that point, those handful of House members really took over the process of figuring out what the statutory framework was going to look like. And the proponents of the bill were kind of taken out of the driver's seat and the AEC and other trade groups really weren't in the driver's seat either. Yeah. Everybody was providing input, but it was all based upon the new language that was being floated by these, these House members. Um, ultimately, a revised version of the bill that had the, what something similar to what we see now in the law today uh, with prop payment terms incorporated into not just the Public Procurement Act for public jobs, but also the private uh, contract clause requirements in 11-4.6 of the code. That's what came out of the, the, the House process. There were a number of inconsistencies in the bill, um, definitions that didn't match up, lots of questions and problems, probably more questions than we have answers based upon it. Meaning just how to interpret that language? Clients were coming to to me and others who were familiar with the process and the language as it was being refined, asking, well, what does this mean? How are we going to implement this? What does this mean if I'm a GC? What is this, you know, if I'm a trade contract? Um, and ultimately, the bill passed with a delayed enactment clause that said it wasn't going to take effect until January 1 of this year, 23. And it was sent for study with, by the, the uh, DG, uh, Department of General Services and, and some other trade groups, industry groups, including the AUC, got together to talk about problems that needed to be fixed within the, the bill. And the Legislative Committee for the AUC and ABC and other trade groups put in their two cents and participated in this process to identify major issues that needed to be clarified. like. Does this apply to engineers? Does it apply to design yeah. professionals? It probably wasn't intended to, but if the design professionals really were concerned that it might apply. They might have now this this pay if paid limitation that went downstream for their design engineers who were subcontracting with them. Um, there were other questions about just how far down the chain of contract these terms flowed. There were questions about um, the notice requirements that were now in. in if you're going to withhold payment, you got to comply with, you know, these these new express notice requirements of why and the basis and the amount you're withholding. No questions about how that applied and and the limitations were. Um. So, 
the recommendations that came out of the, the General Assembly study session through uh, DGS led to legislation in the 2023 uh, session that was intended to clean up uh, this 11-4.6, but also the Public Procurement Act's code section that was modified by the original bill, uh, Senate Bill 550, uh, back in the um, 2022 session. And uh, the the language that we have now is better yeah, by far than the language that passed uh, the 2022 uh, session and the language that was originally proposed at the beginning of the process. Um, I will say that uh, <laughs> there are great stories. I, I remember being on a, a conference call, virtual meeting with uh, some lawyers for, for GGS this year during the process where we were finding a language where there were some suggested revisions that would have completely and totally undermined the entire effort um, by taking away some of the prompt payment terms that were originally in the Public Procurement Act that didn't need to be changed, that were relied upon by public contractors and subs forever. Um, and ultimately, after some good conversations, they, they went along with the revisions that everybody else was supporting. Uh, but it, it leads us to where we are today, where we've got uh, a prohibition against the application of conditional payment, pay if pay clauses and contracts under most circumstances, yeah. not all. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because I think there's a common misperception that these clauses are completely done. You're not allowed to use them anymore and they're out the window. Can you speak to why that's not completely accurate? Yes. So if you're working on a commercial project over $500,000, this statute will most likely apply to you at the general contractor, subcontractor, lower tier subcontractor levels, as well as the owner. The owners have, have 60 day payment terms now under the statute. Um, if you're working on a smaller project under $500,000, it won't apply. You still can have conditional payment, prop pay, or uh, pay pay language under the, the new version of the statute. Similarly, there's an exception if the party directly above you in the chain of contract goes bankrupt or is insolvent, according to the definitions in the Virginia Code, then the prompt pay language still applies, but you ha now have an ability to rely upon the pay if paid conditional payment language to justify not paying your lower tier subcontractors. Now, again, that's only applicable if the party directly above you sure. goes bankrupt or is insolvent. So if you're a second tier sub mm -hmm. and the owner goes back over the moment. You still owe your lower tier suppliers and subcontractors because the the prop pay language still applies and the pay pay clauses is not enforceable. So effectively, I mean, there is that possibility. It's out there, but hopefully, people aren't running into this on a regular basis because that would mean there's a lot of bankruptcies right. that are out there. Um, and this may be a conversation for another day or some folks can follow up with you if they have further further uh, questions, but is it possible to succinctly articulate, A, if I'm putting a contract together, how do I structure the language where I do have that out, right? Um, if that upper tier party, you know, goes bankrupt, I can bring this to the plate. Yeah, I think I've got a, a decent clause that I recommend to my clients, but I saw another one in a contract I reviewed the other day that was different than mine, and, and I, I'd say equally 
good or better. Yeah, uh, I'll be frank. It was pretty solid language that incorporated the express exception in the statute um, to allow the application of paid language um, when that happens, if there's a bankruptcy or an insolvency. Okay. Um, so you can do it. You can absolutely do it. And let's be clear, these 68 payment terms are the outer limit. You could have shorter payment terms. I was negotiating a contract today for a client, and we're talking about where that limit lies. Can it be 30 days? Of course it can. Can it be seven days from payment? Absolutely, but no more than 60 days. Right. And pay, pay no longer extends that out. Gotcha. In okay. Yeah. So anything under 60, you have some options, but nothing after 60. So Right. The, the other dispute becomes... Do you have a choice of law provision if it's an out-of-state party that incorporates California law or Texas law or some Georgia law? If if that happens, can you get around the new sexual requirements by saying my contract's actually going to be governed by other state law that allows me to rely upon 120-day payment terms and pay Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, you know, we could talk about this topic and... and a lot more detail. It's a complex topic. Um, if somebody has questions, you've got a lot of experience in this arena. You know, I know you have clients all over the state. How, what's the best way for somebody to reach you? Yeah, so they can email me at S-W-I-E-G-A-R-D at gentrylock.com. So that's S-W-E-G-A-R-D at gentrylock.com. Or call me at 540-983-9451. Perfect. And we'll, um, we'll put some notes together with your contact in case anybody wants to follow up with you but i appreciate you doing this i appreciate all your hard work i know you're not getting paid to do all that stuff on the side um but you know you do a great job you got a lot of knowledge and and you don't have to put in all that time so it's you you've, you give a lot of a lot of sweat equity to the can uh construction industry well i appreciate the opportunity to talk with with you and bill's clients um yeah, yeah i'm passionate about the industry and i want to make sure that i can do my part to to, to set the law and policy so that it's helpful for everybody and many folks as well. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm John Pendleton with Scott Insurance, and we'll follow up with any contact information uh, for Spencer. And I hope everyone has a great day. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.